Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is episode 2591 of the Survival Podcast. We're going to be talking about a lot of things today with our special guest. His name is Reed Richard. Uh, he's from Canada. He's going to be talking about growing food on an island. He calls himself the conductor of Orchestra Farm, which is a regenerative experiment in what he calls social horticulture. But the root of what we're going to be talking about today is a biophilic approach to life. What is biophilia? It sounds like some kind of weird disease, doesn't it? No, don't, don't freak out. It's a, it's a good thing. It actually ties in in our quote of the day today. And we'll, so we'll lead off today. Uh, with quote of the day. It's by a guy named Stephen R. Kellert. He's a professor emeritus. I mean, he's basically retired and still does research uh, from Yale. Um, and while Yale is not my favorite place in the world or anything, there are some really amazing thinkers out of Yale, and Stephen Kellert is one of them. Uh, I wouldn't say he is the source of this, but he is. he's a great way to explain it. Uh, the biophilic belief or biophilic theory is that humans naturally seek out nature and living things. That we are as an intrinsic part of the Earth's ecosystem. We are a natural being. We seek to bond with nature. This is why we actually do things even as, as unnatural as they are as landscaping. Humans don't really want to live in you know, a, a, a white building with a white sidewalk with a white wall devoid of all life. And even when we live in things that are kind of like that, we put up pictures of trees. There, it, it, you know, we keep pets because we seek to bond with other life forms. That we are intrinsically part of the Earth's systems. And one of the great thinkers on that and great writers on the concept is Stephen R. Kellert. He actually has, there's an award named after him that they award for architectural design that does this. And this is what he said, and I, I really like this. We will never be truly healthy, satisfied, or fulfilled if we live apart and alienated from the environment from which we evolved. And that's biophilic philosophy. That humans cannot truly be happy divorced from the natural ecosystem that created us in the first place. And you can believe whatever you want spiritually, that, you know, as far as God creating man or, or what have you. That, that doesn't really change this at all. That has nothing to do with this. Because for as long as humans have walked this planet, for far longer than we have divorced ourselves from nature, we have been part of nature. We walked in the jungles, we walked in the fields, we were fed by the forest, and we were given water by the streams. The way we live today, where a lot of our existence is divorced from natural systems, is a tiny speck on the total timeline of humanity. You know, they, I've heard it put before about how long humans have been on Earth versus the cosmic nature of our planet, you know, four and a half billion years. And what they say is if you were to line up the entire history of the world as though it were a 24-hour clock and it expired at midnight, that humans came on the scene 10 seconds to midnight. 
And it kind of puts us in place to how small we are. But I think if we ran that experiment a different way, and we said, how long have humans been represented by a day? So from the very first people till now, it's probably a similar number. It's probably somewhere under one minute to midnight of the time at which humans began to exist truly divorced from nature. So no matter how we got here, for that long we lived where the trees were a shelter and the stream was a source of water. And only today have we sanitized and serialized that to where children don't understand where their food comes from. And we will never be truly happy, healthy, satisfied, or fulfilled if we live apart and alienated from the environment from which we evolved. Stephen R. Kellert. We're going to be talking about that very thing today, deeply with our special guest, Reed Richard. Before I bring Reed on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. Uh, like most members of this audience, I am a huge believer in the right of personal self-defense. And as someone very connected with nature, I have lived most of my life as a hunter and a fisherman. And as a hunter, I've done a lot of my hunting with guns. So guns have always been a big part of my life. And because of that, I know a fundamental reality. A gun without ammo is not a gun. I mean, we still have to treat it like a gun safety-wise. I get all that. But in the end, it can't do what a gun is supposed to do. All an unloaded gun is, is an expensive club, something you can barter, or a way to get yourself shot by somebody that doesn't know it's not loaded. I mean, that's all a gun without ammo is. So we need ammo. You want ammo? Get it at BulkAmmo.com. It will get shipped so quickly to your front door, it'll just be better than having to go somewhere and deal with an idiot in a store. You're going to pay less for it. Their service is amazing, and they have everything you'd be looking for. Check them out today at BulkAmmo.com. Another thing that I've always been big on is diversification of your investments. I recommend 5 to 10% of your net wealth invested in silver and gold. I'm not one of these all-in guys. I'm not, you know, William Devane, I buy gold every chance I get. I mean, I am not a freaking retard, just to be blunt. But I think having some portion of your wealth in an immediately transferable, anonymous source of wealth with a multi-thousand-year track record of intrinsic value is probably a good idea in a day and age where there's so much instability. So you know, it just goes without saying we should be adding some silver and gold here and there to our portfolio. But then why Jambullion? Okay, Jambullion has supported the show for nine years. Jambullion gives you a discount. No one does that. Jambullion starts out with better pricing than Monix, Atmex, Lear Capital, other big, giant silver and gold houses. Uh, Jambullion has a president named Michael who I can email directly if there is ever a problem, though I seldom have to do so. And he has a track record of always fixing things. Uh, and all your orders ship free. So why the hell would you get your silver and gold anywhere else? And to be completely honest, well, maybe you have a local shop or something that you want to support. That's fine. But if you're going to be ordering silver and gold, there is just no reason to go anywhere other than jmbullion.com. With that, let's go ahead and uh, and jump on into this subject today. Again, um, we're talking about the biophilic approach to life, though the discussion is not going to center only on that term. But everything we're talking about today kind of comes back to that root of that tree, if that makes sense. And with that, I want to say, hey, Reed, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks so much for having me today, Jack. Hey, I'm, I'm glad to have you on. I've given you a pretty good introduction already. I thought, like, a really cool way for the audience to kind of get to know what you're all about is to talk about you traveled through North America uh, with a bicycle and a trailer. Uh, 
what were you carrying and what was the reason to do that? I think that'll put the audience in touch with who exactly you are as much as anything. Sure. Uh, the trailer was a 13-foot-long kayak trailer, and it had a waterproof bag on it, which was important because I, at the time, was primarily a musician and performer, and so along with some basic camping gear and clothes, there was a bass clarinet, an alto sax, a flute, a didgeridoo, and then uh, some books to write in. And at the time, I looked at, out at the world, and I recognized that the majority of the world was living on like a, between like one and three dollars a day. And living in North America, you know, that's generally speaking not our case. And I grew up in a middle class family, and I was like, what would it be like to live on a dollar or three a day? And by traveling with a bicycle, you know, I'm then really cutting back a lot of expenses. And so in that, I was also curious of going out into nature and listening to nature. I had, by being interested in music early on, and jazz in particular, there's notions of improvisation and spirituality that kind of go hand in hand. And I had, because of that, gotten introduced to Taoism and some tantric practices and yogic practices and realized that there wasn't really a human embodied teacher that I knew of that I could go to to get the answers I was looking for at that point. And so I would bicycle out to some spot in nature, in the woods or in the wilds, and I would basically just set up a tiny camp there and I would spend a lot of time sitting and listening and doing basic meditation practices and then because I knew that I had been cultured into this modern world that we're living in, I wanted to deculture that. And in the wild, when an animal experiences trauma, it will go off and it will shake its body and make whatever sounds it needs to make to kind of release that. And so I used my instruments to and moving practices and dancing to release the basic trauma of modern life. And then I discovered that bikes cling more than, you know, a couple hundred miles wasn't really, like, my greatest passion. And so when I would get to somewhere such as Chicago, because I enjoyed still going and seeing friends and having places to experiment with performing, if I did need money, I would just set up my instrument on the sidewalk and put on some dark sunglasses and just play whatever I felt like playing. And I'd wind up with enough money to eat for a night and... You know, couch surfing was a thing at the time, and libraries have easy access to computers, so it was pretty simple to find places to stay and friends to stay with. Um, and then I would take trains or buses, like from Chicago to Seattle. Or I would uh, find ride shares through Craigslist if I felt like I really wanted to go and find some of the middle portions of the country, because there are some gorgeous parts of the country, but I find Nebraska to be unbearable. <laughs> and uh, then, <laughs> you know, I got stuck in Kansas once, so I totally understand. <laughs> yeah, Kansas is a bit better than Nebraska, in my opinion, yeah. but it's oh. one of those things where it's just like, I, you know, let's let's have this go by quickly. And eventually, while I was um, in the woods one day, 
kind of in this meditative state, I, I was often visited by different uh, nature spirits, essentially. And one of those was Pele, who is a volcano goddess in Hawaii. And she requested that I come and visit with her. And I was like, this is about the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. I'm going to figure out how to get to Hawaii. And so I ended up getting rid of my bike and my trailer and making my way over to the big island of Hawaii. And when I got there, I, for the first time, except for being on stage, I felt like I'm home. And, you know, when you're foraging and trying to live off very little and you get to Hawaii and there's just this natural abundance of coconuts and whatever other the plethora of wonderful fruit that's growing there, it's so much easier to live there. No, I understand that. I remember people have asked me, like, could you survive in the wilderness? Well, well, where? Right? I I, I eke out an existence in the desert. But you drop me off in a jungle, and when you come back, I'll gain weight. Absolutely. (laughs) There's a difference, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, please continue. Just, you know, I've always... I've always realized that there are certain biomes that are just naturally abundant. Yes. And it was fascinating. Um, I picked up a little trick along the journey that some old man I met one day told me about when he was just like, you're doing what exactly? He's like, well, if you're out there in the woods and you don't know what to eat, you can just crush up whatever you think might be edible and stick it in your armpit for like a half an hour. Hmm. And if your armpit breaks out in a rash or is it irritated at all, don't eat that. And if it doesn't, you, it probably won't kill you. And so I experimented with that a bunch. You know, there, back in the day, there were pemmican bars, if you're, you might be familiar with those. And I would have like five or six of those that I would take with me so that if I got seriously hungry, I could eat something. But otherwise, I was enjoying fur tips and a lot of things. I have no idea what they are because when you're – I was moving from the northeast of the country where I grew up, all, and then I would avoid winter. And so I would make my way down to the southwest and through Texas and down towards Mississippi and then back up for uh, springtime. And I, I'm happy I'm still alive after all of that because I was definitely not informed, and I wouldn't recommend anyone else do that. Um but it was very informative, and there's a, a man named Victor Schauberger, who was a forester, I think, in the Black Forest over in Europe. And anyway, he was watching water a lot, and he noticed the droplets of water that would rise off of a waterfall. And I became quite interested in those Subtler frequencies, like we all know about gravity, we see it all the time and experience it regularly. But that force of levity where it's the effort, that it's the things that are rising up. So whether it's lava that's rising out of a volcano, which was the best thing ever to sit and do that process in Hawaii, to watching a spring come out of the ground. It's like, that's, it's curious the water will essentially defy gravity and percolate up through the earth. And so in Hawaii, I spent six years there. And again, I was mo- I ended up playing in a band out there, 
It was about a 12-piece band playing all kinds of different music and really still focused on improvising. I wasn't particularly going to learn, you know, a particular riff or anything of that sort. I was interested in playing what the music wanted to be offered and in general enjoyed the exploratory aspect of um, movement a lot more. In Hawaii, there is a great dance community there. Um, that was the ecstatic dance community, and which is basically free-form dancing on a silent dance floor, and silent in the way that you're not allowed to talk to each other. And it, it's this beautiful thing where when we're engaged in being embodied and no one is trying to have a conversation with you, with your words, all of this extra body language can take place and different nuances to movement can come forward. One of my personal practices with that at the time was they had a this, basically this big um, marketplace that would happen and anyone would go set up a little booth at it. So it was kind of like a flea market. And I would go in there with the mindset of I'm going to find the outfit that I would never wear. I'm going to buy that outfit. I'm going to take it to the dance and I'm going to dance in that outfit because by wearing something that I wouldn't wear, whenever I would see myself, I'd be like, kind of, who is that? Who would, oh, it's me. And it would open up new forms of movement for myself because I, why would I dress like any number of ways that were completely ridiculous? And a lot of practices I found were great just in terms of opening up that kind of space of, I want to try out different things. I'm going to, I don't need to do what everyone else is doing. I'm pretty content with a life that doesn't cost me hardly anything and seems like it's actually a really uh, good quality of life. Like when you can go to the beach just about every day and go swimming and there's avocados that are basically falling on you, it's, you can live on avocados. There is definitely something to that. There's an old story that involves a fisherman in a village uh, in Mexico, and this, this businessman's down there on vacation, and he talks to the fisherman. He has a few fish, and he says, you know, how how long did it take you to catch those fish? And he's like, not very long. He goes, well, what are you going to do with them? He says, I sell a couple, keep a couple, go home, have dinner with my family, play some guitar, lay out by the beach. And the businessman goes through this. It's a long story. He goes through this whole soliloquy about all these things he could do and a bigger fleet and catch more fish and get really, really rich. And, you know, by the time the whole thing's over, he says to the businessman, so what would I do then? He goes, then you could retire to a tropical paradise, lay on the beach and play your guitar all day. Right. And yep. I think there is some, there is some reality and wisdom to that. And, and in all of this journey and self discovery, you, you hit on something, um, called the biophilic approach to life and I kind of talked about it a little bit in the intro section before I got you on so it's not completely foreign to people but I also kind of said you know if you don't know what that is you know bio biophilia that sounds like some kind of new you know uh, psychotic disease or something right and it's not it's one of the coolest things in the world can you talk a little bit about what the biophilic approach to life is and how it relates you know for our audience to prepping absolutely um so my awareness is that uh E.O. Wilson, who is a Harvard professor, was the person who kind of coined the term. And it is bio means nature and philia means love. And so it is a love of nature. And as I was like prepping for our interview, 
I had this notion that like permaculture is the design science and biophilia is the feeling sense. Because I know that when I go out there and I'm in my little farm or garden spots, that there's a feeling that just comes over me when I'm in that space. Like, I love it. I can't really get enough. And when I'm, when I get to be in the action of planting a tree or a bush or some seeds, there's this care of tending that I would relate to like, you know, for someone who like loves their parents and their parents get old and they need to like care for their parents. It's like, it's a lot of work, but it's also this kind of thing where it's like, I'm happy that I'm able to be there for you. And to be able to be present attending the earth is one form of being able to express biophilia that I find my having an awareness of it enables me to engage in more of it and bring more of it forward. And with prepping, I, you know, I mentioned I have a small farm and one of my things is that I just like to grow enough. When I grow food for one person, I want food for 10 people. And I feel like then if anything happens, like some animal gets into the farm, I mean, they'll actually eat all of it. But the idea would be that there's enough extra that whatever happens, there's still going to be plenty for myself. And then with that, there's also this notion that I'm not really just growing plants. I'm really growing soil. And there's been some studies done that show like in a handful of healthy soil, there are more organisms living in that than there are people on the planet. And our bodies are, from my perspective, these rather large ecologies. We have uh, microbiomes, so... I'm sure you're familiar that our, our guts are composed of a lot of other organisms that are not classified as humans, and they've been around for a lot longer than people or primates have been. And same thing with our eyeballs and our skin. Like, we're covered in other organisms that, without them, we can't even exist as people. And so there's this symbiosis of life that's taking place where all these different organisms are cooperating together to have what seems like, you know, one individual person. And when I'm walking on the soil, recognizing that it is teeming with life, if I want to move on the soil with some mindfulness, it's nice to ask permission. Just to be like, hi, I'm here. My name's Reed. It's, and I'm, I would like to move across you. And in the same way of, there's that mention of a story of an indigenous person who's going to cut down a tree for a canoe that you've mm -hmm. mentioned a few different times. And that is another aspect to this biophilia, where you recognize the vastness of life that a given organism is and its contributions that have largely um in our society, gone unnoticed. You know, we look at a tree, it's like, it's lumber. Well, it's so much more than that. It's like, how many different other animals make homes in that? And insects have homes in this, and fungi that are interconnected and communicating through the soil structure. Well, every time you put your foot in the soil, if there's a fungal network down there, it is aware of you, and 
by allowing our awareness to be aware of it, a conversation can take place. So there's different uh, groups that have attempted to show that plants are communicative and express themselves. And a lot of times we're just moving too fast as people to really notice these things. You know, we have all the different parts of our life that need to get handled and slowing down enough to listen to a plant at the rate that it communicates or listen even more slowly to the life in the soil tends to not be something that most of us are doing with any regularity, if at all. And so I appreciate having the space in my own life to drop down and really feel all this life that's taking place. And it's one of those things, I don't know if you've seen a child being born, but it is a miracle. It's like, you have to be kidding me that, you know, a child comes out of a woman. It's it's kind of mind-boggling. So when they say life is a miracle, that's a true thing. And then when we get to this notion of how much life is actually taking place within our gardens or just in our lawn, it's actually rather incredible. And so, yeah. I was going to say, um, you mentioned, I, I don't remember who you mentioned as um, a college professor, but the quote of the day that we did today was by a guy that's very well known in this field as well named Stephen Keller. Uh, there's actually the Keller Award for Architecture of Designing Life into Buildings. And oh, yes. Th that quote, which you didn't hear because you weren't on in the intro, Uh, was we will never be truly healthy, satisfied, or fulfilled if we live apart and alienated from the environment from which we evolved. That we literally came from all of this environment that you're talking about. Not only do we interact with it, that there has been actually a very short time in human history that we've lived divorced from nature at all. That the majority of times that humans have walked the earth, we've walked the earth barefoot on the ground in connection with nature, that that is the vast majority of our time as a species. And yes. we can't cut ourselves off from that and then expect to be happy. Totally. It's also the kind of thing where I'm sure you're familiar with stories of when a tsunami is coming and all the animals flee from the shoreline. They know. <laughs> and, and people are like, oh, what's going on? In that same way that when we develop this sense of connection with all these different life forms, it's easier to tell what's going to happen around us. And so by building up our soil and, you know, speeding that process up, which is a very long process otherwise, we can actually develop this, these extra senses essentially of ourselves. I almost see it like a lot of people are walking around with hands tied behind their back and they just don't know it but by having this separation with the earth. And that when you free yourself from that and you develop this connection, it's like, oh, I have all these extra limbs of awareness now that I can do things with. You know, you were speaking about, like, the miracle of birth, and it's always kind of come back to me how many things we, we hear about as miracles and we don't think about the real miracle. So with religious traditions, for instance, and I don't mean to, you know, dis dissuade anybody's religious beliefs, but it's it's my way of looking at, let's say, the miracle of the loaves and fishes. So the story is that Jesus took five loaves and two fish 
and fed a multitude. Uh, mm. and, and to me, that's not a miracle if Jesus is really God. Well, of course God can do that, right? If, 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 if you believe the belief system, then there's nothing miraculous about God being able to do that because oh. you would expect that God can do anything. The real miracle is if you take a mindful person and give them two fish, a male and a female in a pond, and the wheat berries that you need to make five loaves of bread, in a couple of years, they can feed more people than we're in the story from the reproductive power of those fish and that wheat and the co-creation that man can do with those things. Absolutely. That is the best way I can sum up what we're talking about today, that we have this interrelationship with natural systems that we are not apart from. We, we, we may be, but we are not supposed to be apart from them. And by not being apart from them, all of a sudden, miracles seem to open up everywhere, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So you also talk about life over wealth and redefining what wealth means and how we would track wealth. What do you mean by that? A lot of people will look at their finances and kind of ask maybe as well, like, are they healthy? And kind of cut it there and be like, you know, we're either doing really great or we're not. Sure. Um, but as I've looked at my life and questioned, like, what does it mean to be wealthy? And having taken such an austere approach earlier on to not acquiring uh, financial wealth, I look at my life and ask questions such as, how much free time do I have? How much community do I have around myself? Like, am I able to engage in stimulating conversations and uh, creative projects? Uh, what is my space or home like? Does it have all the different things that I want in it? What is my ability to access tools? All of these are different metrics that I use for defining wealth, along with uh, I personally enjoy like a touch-positive culture. And what I mean by that is it, it feels better to getting more hugs in a day. And sometimes that hug could be like just taking my shoes off and putting my feet into the earth. You know, some, the, my space of home, one of my questions for myself is, you know, do I have space for a garden at my home? Uh, do I have enough space? I mentioned being a musician earlier and I like to walk around in circles while I'm playing music. And so do I have enough space to feel comfortable doing that? I also do art projects and mixed media things. And so do I have enough space that I can actually work on that? It took a while. Uh, one of the things I had to build for that was a desk on wheels because my child is very rambunctious and my wife also holds events. And so I had to be able to take my desk out of the front room space that it usually exists on occasions and open up the space for more. But if you're doing paintings, you have to have a spot for them to sit while they're in process. And so for a few years there, I didn't have that stuff, and I really noticed that the quality of my life was very diminished. And there was a time before I had a kid where I had all the free time in the world, and anyone who has a kid probably <laughs> has noticed that their free time really diminishes a lot. Um, and there was, for a, thankfully for myself, because I chose to have my first child, I was ready for that, and I was excited to just have a kid 
and walk around with the an infant and be in the wonder of like wow they're they really haven't experienced any of this yet and being in their amazement was utterly fabulous um but when we left hawaii because that's where my daughter was born uh suddenly for instance the finances came into stark contrast that i no longer had a benefactor in my life and it was time to go and pay the bills to cover the rent and then all of the other you know wonderful things that we get to have in our world but someone's got to pay for them and so for myself i asked you know i could basically do anything but i like being outside that's where i feel happiest and when i looked around i was just like i'm just going to go and create a job for myself as a landscaper and then that's turned into property management and every day i get to be outside i feel like i am blessed by getting to be out here i make good enough money that my costs of life are covered but i am also not trying to be a millionaire for instance i'm not too concerned about although at this point being in my early 40s i am thinking you know other people have this thing called retirement that they seem to want to get to although as an artistic person the idea is never stop creating and so there should always be something of interest happening um with the community there's a, an interesting thing of i live on a small island here in british columbia and one of the reasons why that's possible is because there's a dancing community here and again it's one of these silent dance floors this is particularly called dance temple um and they play a wide range of music but no one can talk on the dance floor and that having that practice in my life on they do it twice a week i generally only make it once but it really gives me a space to breathe in a way that is incredibly nourishing for uh reducing stress and opening up my body remember those old gi joe figures that had rubber bands in the joints yeah i kind of had a thought when i was a kid that like we should be able to move like that <laughs> and then like as i was a teenager i discovered yoga and stuff and i still can't move like that no but i sort of see it as this thing of like you know i want to constantly be increasing my range of motion constantly increasing my strength and i do it just by a little bit i'm like a 5 to 10% person if every year i get 5 to 10% more flexibility and strength i'm probably going to be okay when i'm old and the other thing that dancing does is it um it actually like opens up um your peripheral vision if you're doing like free form dancing because nobody wants to crash into each other and i have lots of close calls but as i like to say a close call means uh you know almost doesn't happen so if you almost crash into somebody you didn't crash into anybody and that's a win and there's a lot of different studies out there on the health benefits of dancing it 
I guess it even does a lot for like helping stave off dementia and these kinds of things. And so when I think of leaving the island because it's incredibly expensive to buy a place here and, you know, I heard your story the other day of buying your home and I was just like, oh, 200 some thousand dollars. Jeez. <laughs> that sounds way better than the half million that I'm looking at or way more. I was like, I don't know if that's real. Um, but I also want to be close enough to make sure that I have these kind of spaces that I can go and share different kinds of community. So there's, when I know that there is that active, um, artistic community, both dancing wise along with performance wise for myself, then I'm like, okay, I can go and exist there. Gotcha. So you have a place you call Orchestra Farm. Uh, you call yourself a conductor of the farm. How, how do you, how do you mean that? And how does this tie into things like regenerative agriculture, uh, horticultural experimentation, things like that? Yes. So um, I call myself a conductor. Again, I have this musical background. Um, the conductor has to know the, the whole score. It has to know what all the different instruments are doing. In this case, I would qualify instruments as what does, what's the land doing? You know, ideally I would have been able to sit with the land for a quicker amount of time, but the project needed to get going. So I listened to the elder farmers who were there who invited me to take on this particular project. And I asked them, you know, what has worked here in the past? And so they explained that potatoes and squashes have done great there and that other people have had little market gardens in that particular location. And I myself am not actually interested in farming. I'm more interested in having a edible medicinal play forest. But this land is in, it's a bottom land. It's in a frost pocket. It exists at the edges of two ponds that exist uh, beside a lake. And there's a creek that runs on the north side of this little farm. There's also, I came to find out in the first year, a spring that runs through the farm. Where right now it's, uh, there's a lot of water and flooding taking place. And so it really changes what can happen there. Um, so as a, I'll come back around a little bit to a few things, but because I enjoy people, I have mostly in the past gardened with other people and enjoy sharing that space together. And so we've been experimenting with opening up how to do that in the realm of because there are rotational crops happening in the space, and I'm the person who has been with it the longest at this point, I know the basic score for how that process is moving along. And I also need to listen to what the other people who want to be involved with are looking to get out of the project, whether it's food-wise or a place for their kids to come and be able to have an experience in gardening and farming to the 
gentlemen that own the land that I'm leasing it from, they have animals. And so when the animals go off to the abattoir, I get all the offal from them and then have to deal with that. And then there's just like what the land will have happen because of, for instance, a creek running, a seasonal creek with this spring that runs through it. There's, you know, we've tried tomatoes a few different times in a few places and they, they have not done well. And so as a conductor, I have to listen to all those different parts that are playing and organize them in a way that they can each shine and they can each have feel like this is a, a really fun experience, be very rewarding and that they want to keep being members of it. Uh, on the, that same social experiment, instead of having it be a regular farm where people come in and I expect, you know, that 50 feet of lettuce to get all weeded, I like to drop people back into their bodies and into the recognition of all the different life that's there. So with that, a bit more of that biophilic approach of like, there is all this lettuce that needs to get weeded. And I'm also more interested in you getting caught up in the wonder of it. And some, I'm just picked up these uh, fold scopes, which are basically origami microscopes. And I'm excited to get people checking out the life of the plants and the soil that are present there. Just to give people an idea, um, along with things like lettuce and beets and leeks and carrots and beans and cucumbers and tomatoes, we've also got strawberries, blueberries, currants, mulberries, gooseberries, autumn olives, goji berries, sea buckthorn, raspberries, blackberries, potatoes. I'm looking this year at getting um, some hazelnut and pecans and trying out both of those and hickory nuts along with some pawpaws. And then we have chamomiles and mugwort, lemon verbena, uh, thyme, oregano. We had some lemongrass, and then I'm experimenting with wasabi there, and this year I'm going to add an experiment of ginger as well because I, I just like having as many different kinds of things growing as possible, um, which complicates the whole situation, but it keeps me entertained, which is, I, I won't do it if I'm not entertained. Awesome, man. So you, uh, what are your thoughts on gorilla gardening? So gorilla gardening has been an interest of mine from back when I was originally traveling. When I would, uh, go out into the woods, I would bring the seed packets with myself and spread those around. Um, and then I heard of some people in San Francisco who were grafting on edible varieties to ornamentals. And this is obviously in the form of trees that were there, to which I just think every city should just be kind of teeming with more fruit everywhere. I guess that Seattle has its first... Uh, food forest, and the idea is let everyone steal that stuff. But gorilla gardening gives us an opportunity to question ownership structures. Like, again, before our modern civilization got into its whole grain growing operations, 
our senses of who owned what land was quite different. And I think preferred in a lot of ways. And I find that guerrilla gardening helps connect me with that, where I'm just like, it doesn't matter who's, if I'm like walking down a suburban area, you know, sprinkling seeds somewhere is a great way to just help increase the diversity of life that's in a place along with giving some of the different animals that might eat those seeds if they don't sprout and grow that extra bit of nourishment. Also, like in the urban environment, just buying some fertilizer or mulch and giving that to the trees that exist there, they those trees really appreciate that kind of stuff. Um, when I was in Hawaii, there's this story that I heard where, you know, people would be doing horticulture basically from the sea up into the mountains. And on the paths that they would walk, they would plant their foods and medicines so that as you're just walking any given place, there would be food and medicines available. And I was like, that is the world I want to live in. And that's not going to happen unless I take an active approach with this. So now that I'm settled a bit more and there's lovely trail system here, I take with me at times like comfrey root. And I will just find little spots and put that in. I, Because I have a small farm, I often have an overabundance of, you know, potatoes or different herbs and things that I can, like, snip off little cuttings from and bring them into the forest and plant them. Now, mind you, most of the comfrey doesn't really uh, last that long because it's such good fodder for animals that the deer and the rabbits and whatever else is living in the forest that wants to eat it as soon as they notice it, are going to come over and gobble it up. But it's not really about I'm growing this plant to have its fullest life and its best life. Like That's why I have a small farm. It's really a matter of coming back into what I think of as nature's economy, which is a gifting economy, and giving more back to nature and just coming into that place of I'm happy to be here and want to contribute more because of the oddness of life at this point. You know, it's these places are generally designed just to like walk through and appreciate them from a perspective of like, it's really great to be here. Um, but when I add in my active involvement in it, and at this point, this is also including when I see a depression in the earth, and there's a bunch of random sticks around and such, I will take those sticks and put them into that depression and step on them a brunch to break it down. And over time, you know, it's not going to be a hoogle mound or anything of that sort, but it does add that extra bit of moisture to those areas and extra, you know, fungal activity in these pockets because a lot of our landscapes are just dehydrating at a pretty rapid rate. And then we have all these different fire seasons that are, Coming forward at this time, where you see, you know, California's on fire, Australia's on fire, Canada was on fire, you know, Siberia's on fire, parts of Africa on fire. We're losing our connection and that sense of personal responsibility to these places because that's somebody else's job to deal with it. And I'm just 
for myself, I find it's much more enriching to be like, actually, it's it's my job. I exist here. I walk in these places. These are public spots. I am the public. And so I'm going to have an active job in caring for this. And I don't need someone to come around and tell me to do something. I can, because of my interest with all this, I have general awarenesses and can put them to greater use. Awesome, man. So you've kind of mentioned this a little bit already, but um, how has being a father changed your life? And I think you said you had like an unassisted birth in the jungle of Hawaii. What was, what was that all about? Well, um, my wife is from Canada, and when she came to Hawaii, she did not expect to have a kid and get married. And when we got married, I was under the impression that I could easily get her citizenship. It turns out you you need to be not considered poor by the government, which I was definitely, at the time, not making any money. And so I realized that I can't get her citizenship, and with that, you know, the health care program in the States was like, uh, you guys don't qualify, and when we went to the midwife to kind of assess what was happening, uh, the midwife had this wonderful thing to say, and this woman had uh, spent a lot of time in Africa and did midwife work, like, out in some seriously remote parts, and she said that a woman will give birth like she lives her life. And my wife laughs at literally everything. It's kind of a problem at some points, but most of the time it's a wonderful thing. And so I was like, okay, I guess she's going to laugh through this. And I was not, when I'm interested in something, I will read all about it. And when I'm not interested in something, I tend to not read anything about it. And so we decided we were just going to have non-assisted birth. We did have a friend who was a doula who was nearby, and there was other people who were um, also close by. We were living, I think, with about eight people at the time and um, on uh, three acres of land, so we were mildly spread out but relatively close together. And, you know, from from the man's perspective, an unassisted birth is easy. It's really not about us. Uh, it's about being present for whatever the woman needs. So when she wants to, you know, hold on to your back and basically rip your shoulders off, <laughs> that's not the time to tell her that hurts. You just kind of quietly hang on and be like, this isn't going to last forever, and I'm sure if someone will be able to put me back together. Um Thankfully, that moment didn't last that long, and thankfully, there was no complications with the birth, um, but it was one of these moments where getting to see the child come out and not having any of the distracting um, medical professionals nearby who or trying to ask different questions or poke your kid at different shots or whatever all the things can be when um, you're giving birth in a hospital setting or um, some other assisted setting. It was really great to just have enough, you know, 
water and juices available to bring those over and towels to wipe down. Um, that was great. I asked myself, like, at the time, I'm going to be a father. What do I need to do? This idea of providing came to mind. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to provide the funnest place for my kid to be raised. And so in Hawaii, there's these strawberry guava trees, which are very bendy. And they grow so close together. It's mildly ridiculous. But I went out into the, this little strawberry guava forest that was there, and I would climb up to the top of a tree, hold on to the top of it, and jump off so that I'd pull the top of the tree down. And I started weaving the forest together, creating a living jungle gym. And this is about, when I stopped working on it, it was about 100 feet long, 50 feet wide in the center, and diamond-shaped. And you could literally walk up the tree to the, into the canopy and look across the forest, and then there were spots where you had like jump acrosses and little domes and all kinds of ridiculously fun things. Um, later on, I ended up getting a job because I realized I need to support my family with more than just a wonderful life. We have a few needs that require money. And that began that journey. I am fortunate enough to again, have another child coming into the world and this uh, year. And my frame of reference has changed. So as I feel the new father goggles coming on and looking at life, my answer to that same question has changed only slightly. And now it's in the realm of creating a regenerative business so that um, in having a regenerative business, there's, and I'm going to tie this into the farm in a minute, um, also the ability for it to scale and get to the point where it doesn't need me as much, but I'm still able to recur a good income to do all the different things that my family and I wish to do. And so here on Salt Spring Island, there are so many farms that when you go to the farmer's market to look for a niche at the end of the day and see, like, what what are people left with? Everyone has some of their stuff left with. Like, no one is really sold out. And when I examine, because I enjoy, you know, plants and such, but I realize that um, crickets are one of the up-and-coming food sources in North America. And because I really like humor, the notion of getting people to eat crickets is highly appealing to me. And uh, because of the environment that the crickets want to live in requires them to be grown indoors. And there are a number of ways to create a building that will be hot enough and humid enough for them that extra, um, both electricity and um, plant materials can be produced. And so, and then with all of their frass, which is essentially their poo, uh, you then have an added, um, I'm missing the word right now, 
but uh, something you can bring back to the landscape that's around the building. And so I'm now looking at getting this cricket farm up and running as both a part of being a more responsible father who's providing for his family, along with taking my desire for an edible medicinal play forest and allowing that to be cultivated in or around that same space as the cricket farm. That's that's interesting. So you uh, do you have a plan to actually get people to to eat crickets? I mean, in, in our country, like I mean, yep. insects are one of the number one consumed protein around the world, but they're not so wholly embraced by Westerners. That is true. Though and before I say Westerners, I should say many Western countries, because like one of the most popular things in in Mexico to this day is grasshoppers. And totally. They're actually pretty good. I mean, it, it sounds weird, but I, people have always been shocked. I have a video somewhere from back in the day where I caught some scorpions and roasted them. And people oh, were, couldn't believe that I would eat a scorpion. And I'm like, you do realize what a shrimp is. I mean, if you really Absolutely. think about it that way, we're, we're not far off from, from one from the other. One just lives on land and can sting you. Absolutely. So there's a a company in Montana called Cowboy Crickets, and they have an excellent YouTube channel for anyone who's interested in more about this. Um, they make a cookie in particular. They also have, like, the whole dried crickets for people who want that, and they also crush them down into a powder. The powder you can basically add to any baked good, and that includes any, like, pastas as well. So... In the realm of every baked good you could think of could have crickets in it, and it adds a slightly nutty flavor depending on how much you add to it. That's just good. Who doesn't like nuts? That's my generalized opinion. Um, I Again, because I enjoy the humor and performance aspect of things and watching people go like, Whoa, I don't want to eat an insect, that actually adds more entertainment value for myself to the whole process. And because of the – when you're comparing the ecological footprint of raising different animals, crickets, again, are using such a small amount of resources that ecologically they make a ton of sense. And then if you're feeding them non-GMO foods, then they are also non-GMO, organic, whatever kind of – extra labels person wants to toss on to that so that for everyone out there who's eating in those mindful ways. And I kind of see that those other people who are going to be more interested in this for starters are those people like, I'm sure you remember when nobody knew what kale was and then suddenly everybody's eating kale. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's go. It seems like it's going in that direction. When I look at the basic forecast for the industry of crickets, um, I forget the exact uh, markup, but it's something like a 200% growth increase over the next four years in North America. And so I'm in the process of finding the appropriate building to do this in because it needs to 
be a large enough building that I can actually make an income off of. Otherwise, I have a small building on my farm that I could use. It's just so small that it's a lot of work for peanuts. And at this point, I need more than peanuts to do something. Awesome. awesome. And, Go ahead. Oh, no. What were you going to say? I was I was going to move on, but if you're not done, keep keep going. Um, there's also these wonderful things called living machines. Um, are you familiar with John Todd? Uh, yes. Excellent. So in setting up this building for the crickets, uh, I intend to put essentially a greenhouse base on the southern side of it, and in that space have a setup of living machines intermixed with some large tubes full of algae. The living machines can function to help keep the waters of the place clean, and that way if there's ever water that's going to leave this the building site and go outside, it'll also be uh, cleaned up for them. The algae can function as a fuel source, and there's a building over in Germany that's using this to heat and cool their place by having these large, huge, it's like a big apartment complex, huge uh, algae tubes. And then in the basement they have, uh, I think it's basically like a biodigester intermixed with, um, oh, what do they call it, where they compress all the algaes. I wish I was more engineering-minded. Um they could compress it and cause a, a lot of heat with it, and then the spent algae act can be a, uh, either a fertilizer or a food source. Okay. And by engaging with all of these kind of things, I'd like to show a model for a building that's carbon-negative, energy-producing, and uh, regenerating the land with all the extra vegetation that's coming out that can be used for mulches. Because moving forward in life, it seems to me that for a business to really go forward, if it's going to have like products related to it, it needs to show that we can actually live on the planet and be caring for it at the same time. And that that's part of the actual business model that shows the wealth of the company, not just in terms of like, you know, we made, I would like this company to make a million dollars. And I don't want to do that at the expense of the earth. If the earth isn't improved by the operation, then as far as I'm concerned, it's a failure of a business. And so defining all these little aspects to it also builds into the marketing factor where a person can be like, I feel really great about eating this, not only from a nutritional standpoint, but also from uh, an environmental impact factor gotcha one of the other things you've talked about uh in the stuff you prepared for the show here with me is something called ecotherapy can you talk about that a little bit absolutely so i mentioned earlier in talking about biophilia that there's all this life that's around us in the soil and with plants and um there's a style of walking in the woods called Shinrin-yoku, which is out of Japan, where basically um, it's considered forest bathing. And people can go in and 
allow all the natural essential oils that the trees have to calm their nervous system. And they've studied this and watched people's cortisol levels drop down. Um, Richard Louvre, uh, who wrote, I think it's like The Last Child in the Woods or something of that sort, spoke of this idea of nature deficit disorder. And we have most of the population on the earth living in cities. And I'm sure you've seen the difference between the nighttime sky in the city compared to at your own home. And there's a big difference there. And there's some people who have never left the city to even look up at the nighttime sky. That sense of awe that's created in those different moments when you actually can get out into what I call just more more natural environments, because I still see the city as a natural environment since we are a part of nature. But our connection, again, with the earth actually is healing for us. Like There are studies that are showing when you put your hands into the soil that the microbes in the soil actually help to make you feel better and release extra serotonin. And so we're coming into this place where whatever mode you can get out into nature and be in nature with is going to help you feel better. And this year I'm starting up a project that I call the art of tending and I'm going to be, I'm in the process of getting it up on the Airbnb experience platform right now. It's just available on my website where it's a two-hour immersion at Orchestra Farm where I bring people meditatively into our breath and come into like the awareness of, like, let's not just breathe through the top bit of our lungs. Let's take a nice full breath with our whole lungs and recognize that when you're breathing in, the pores of your skin are actually opening and closing. So you could actually be breathing in through your feet and your legs and your arms and your back. And then having a recognition of what is creating that breath. There's all the plants that are around us, but there's also, again, all that life in the soil. And then in the two-hour period, we'll be moving around the farm and allowing whatever plants or portions of the earth are calling to it, or water rays, because I have those on the farm, uh, that are calling to a person to go and sit and be present with them and to have a, a slowing down of like, what does it mean to actually just like ask a plant to take a leaf from it and listen instead of just like, you know, ripping it off. I've seen like little children when they take a leaf off of a plant, sometimes they pull the whole plant out of the ground and it's just like, yeah, okay, that's not as caring as it could be. Um, and, you know, with children, we take time to explain to them, let's put this back in the ground. I hope it lives. And I like to think that we're all kind of children unless someone shows and demonstrates that they're not. And that it's depending on different activities, you know, not everyone is a welder. I'm not just going to hand over welding equipment to anybody. Uh, they got to kind of prove themselves first. And in that same way, giving people time to be present with plants in the earth, I'm going to encourage people to bring writing journals or drawing pads or yoga mats. They, that's their thing. And drop in with being present. I'm sure you're familiar with like the goat yoga that's out there these days. Yeah, that's yeah, a, that was that's something that blew me, me away. We had a guy that came to our last workshop, 
And we were talking about side hustles and small business and all, and he started going on about doing goat yoga, and he was not running it very well from a marketing standpoint. But then when I asked him, like, well, how much, you know, revenue do you guys do in goat yoga every year? It was freaking $70,000 a year in goat yoga. I didn't really understand how big a deal goat yoga was, but apparently goat yoga is indeed a thing. It's a it's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> and wow. so and so as some of these notions of like ecotherapy are starting to percolate their way into the populaces and living in a place which is a tourist destination, I was like, I need to capitalize on this and make available the space to bring people in and offer them some mild to extreme guidance, depending on the person, in relation to opening their senses to feeling the earth or closing your eyes and listening and listening from like, what do you hear right around you? Like on our farm, because it's so wet, you can actually hear water moving through the soil. And you could feel yourself sinking down into the soil if you're still enough because it's that spongy. And we weigh enough to cause it to think, cause it to um, condense under our feet, which is why I try to keep the kids out of the garden beds. Mm-hmm. But at the end of this practice, there'll be there's a space to share reflections of what one noticed, along with having, uh, you know, a, an herbal tea that'll be made from plants that are on the farm, and I hope to give people this experience of really dropping into being in their bodies along with dropping into being this larger body that we call in our ecosystems and being able to take that with them back to their homes and then having more appreciation for the land that they live on and the things that are around them. And it's this interesting thing where we can go our whole life and not notice some you know, small little things that are taking place around us, such as like, you know, all the different weeds that we could be eating. But as soon as someone takes the time to show you what things are or explain a little of these extra um, life happenings, then it can be possible for people to appreciate that everywhere else they go. And so to help people drop into that kind of a space I'm going to be offering this art of tending, which you can find on my website and hopefully soon on the Airbnb experience website. So kind of on that note, as we finish up here, tell people how they can catch up with you online and find out more about what you're doing. Sure. My website is bendingreads.com. We also have orchestrafarm.com and .ca. I exist on Facebook as Reed Richard. Richard is French, so it's spelled like Richard. Um, um, on Facebook and Instagram also has Orchestra Farm as well. And, and I've got links to your personal and your uh, branded social media websites, all that stuff in today's show notes for people so that they can uh, link up with you. And Reed, man, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for taking time to be with us today and, and sharing a very unique perspective into the, the natural world and how we fit in with it. 
such a joy to be here with you, Jack. Thank you for all you do and putting out such great content for us regularly. So great interview. I really want to encourage you to learn more about Reed and his work. I have all of his links in the show notes today, his farm, uh, the Bending Reed site, uh, the farm on Facebook, the farm on Instagram, and his individual personal presence on Instagram and Facebook. I also want to encourage you more to learn more about the biophilic approach to life. Check out people like Stephen R. Keller. I have a link today to a interview. It's a video, but it's really something you can listen to in the background like a podcast because it's just a picture of them. I do that sometimes with audio segments myself uh, just to get them on YouTube. Really, really interesting approach to architecture, design, buildings, and life philosophy in general. It is a good overriding philosophy. It fits well with what we talk about here all the time with re you know regenerative agriculture, permaculture, sustainable living, and all of those things as well. So check all of that out. With that, if you like this show and the work that we do here and you want to support us, please consider doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. I mean, the reality is in the next week, month, something like that, you're going to buy something online. Uh, odds are that, you know, more likely than not, you're going to buy something from Amazon. When you do that, if you shop tspaz.com, you help us no matter what you buy. Um, our item of the day today is Walkerwood Traditional Jamaican Jerk Seasoning. So if you want something that I consider a cheat code for your cooking, you want this. It comes in a mild and a hot, um, or a pack with one each. I will say they are basically the same thing, and the, the, the mild has less peppers, and it's still kind of spicy. Um, but I used to make my own Jamaican jerk seasoning, and my, my, my former business partner and good friend from the UK, Neil Franklin, one day said, Mate, you're wasting your time. It's too much work. Just use this stuff out of a jar. And he said, I know this old lady that used to live in Jamaica. She has a restaurant right here in Plano. She cooks authentic Jamaican food. And for her jerk seasoning for her chicken, this is what she uses out of a jar. If it's good enough for her, it's, it's, it's good enough for you, right? And, you know, he took me to this place, and it was amazing. And she said, yeah, I use this because it's easy. And uh, you can use it right in your own home. And it's not expensive. And it's definitely worth trying. And it's not just good for chicken. One of the best things I've ever made is is pork with this, and another exceptional way to use this is on chicken. Uh, and I'll tell you something else. What I found recently that's made my life just a little bit better is riced cauliflower. I am not a fan of cauliflower. I've never been a fan of cauliflower. And when people say you can make mashed cauliflower that'll taste like mashed potatoes, I call them liar, liar, pants on fire. It just, not to me, I'm sorry, it doesn't, it has a, like a farina, if you know what farina is, it's like cream of wheat, but worse, um, like consistency and gloss and whatever, but I, I, I was like, you got to be open-minded, and I tried riced cauliflower, and I realized that whatever you cooked it in, it indeed did taste like that, like they claim that a mash of cauliflower does, which it does not, and so I tried making a Jamaican chicken in the oven. And the reason you do that in the oven with an oven pan is so you can catch all the drippings. And then I cooked the riced cauliflower in the drippings, the chicken fat drippings with the Jamaican seasoning. And I put the two back together the way you would eat chicken with rice. Oh, my dear God, friends, you have got to try it. It is that good. Check it out again. Walker's Wood Traditional Jamaican Jerk Seasoning. It's our item of the day. Everything at T-Spaz, I own it, I bought it, I'd spend my money on it again, or I wouldn't recommend it to you. And no matter what you buy, if you start there, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. That brings us to our song of the day today. 
Um, well, not the whole week. This whole week so far has been songs about reflection and inward and some struggles and things like that. We started out with Baker Street by Glenn Rafferty talking about the struggles of alcoholism and letting it hold you back from what you really wanted in that case to live in a little small town or in the countryside and just be away from the city, which was the source of the destruction of the man's life. Um, yesterday, we did Wasted on the Way by Crosby, Sills, and Nash, which is a little more upbeat, but it's also about how you know you run out of time, and you can waste your time on the way to where you're going, or you can get on with getting to where you want to go. Today's is more depressing, more introspective, um, It's by a band called 6AM, which was started by Nikki Six from Motley Crue, I think in 2012-ish. And this one's called Tomorrow. The whole album is about Nikki's struggle with heroin addiction. And this is probably, from John Adams' viewpoint anyway, the tamest song on that album, because the whole album's kind of like a product. It's, it's all together about one giant story. Um, but the, the, the gist of this is, Whatever you're waiting for tomorrow to do or fix in your life, don't. Tomorrow won't be any better than today for dealing with it. In fact, it'll be worse because you'll have one more day of not dealing with the problems in your life. Whether that's a disconnection from nature, whether that's an abuse of a substance, whether that's not living life on your own terms, whether that's not being prepared, no matter what it is. This song is about addiction. But for you, it's not just about addiction because it's real easy to sit back and look at somebody with a problem like an addiction to a substance and say, well, you should have never done heroin in the first place. I've never done heroin. I don't have a problem with heroin. Maybe you have a problem with another substance you're not willing to admit. Maybe you have a problem with your eating. Maybe you have a problem with your diet. Maybe you just have a problem with not getting the shit done that you know you need to get done to have your life turn out the way you want it to. We all have places we can do better and try harder. Don't wait till tomorrow. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Where you gonna be tomorrow? How you gonna face the sorrow? Where you gonna be when you die? Cause nothing's gonna last forever. And things change like the weather.